the Easter season, as has been mentioned a few times, the white cloths are still on the cross. And, you know, I've heard it said like this, if you're going to fast for 40 days, you better feast for more than one, right? And uh, so the Easter season is a 50-day celebration. So we get to feast from Easter to Pentecost. And in a special way, we celebrate and we remember that, that God has acted in a life-giving way in Jesus. And our lives, just as during the season of Lent, as they're to be a little bit, perhaps a little quieter, a little more penitent, a little more reflective as we consider our own sin and our, our need for a Savior, during the Easter season, we got to turn that up a little bit and say, now our lives are to reflect a Savior who has come, a God who has acted in a decisive, powerful way, a a Lord who is not dead, who is not in the tomb, but who is alive. And I don't know if you think about that as much as maybe we should. I don't think I do. But Easter isn't just like a one-day celebration where we just kind of say, yeah, he came out of the tomb, woo, charge. It's a, it's a one-day celebration that has eternal implications, that the, that the Christ who was risen and brought back to life is alive even now. Do, do we understand that? He is alive even now. He is active through the presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world. And so one of the things that we're going to be doing throughout the Easter season, we've done this for the last, I think, few years, but throughout this Easter season is we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper weekly. And typically, if you're not a part of our church, you don't know this, but we typically celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month, the first Sunday of each month. But during the Easter season, we're going to be celebrating it weekly. And uh, one of the reasons why we want to do that is we want to, we, want to, we want to center our worship, especially in these weeks. Not that we don't want to do this all the time, but we want to especially bring to mind that our worship is centered around the living Christ. And these these uh, elements, the bread and the cup, that, that remind us, that, that, that beautifully become to us the grace of God that was poured out in Christ's broken body and, and shed blood, these, these symbols, these elements remind us that Jesus, that, that he is present to us, that, that his presence is very alive and real even in this place as we gather from week to week. And we just want to, we just want to be gathered around that. And we, when we receive the elements during this season, it is always an opportunity in communion to be, uh, to be, to be repentant, to be mindful, and, and to be thinking about what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross and how his sacrifice has made a way for us to be forgiven. But it's also a, a, an opportunity for us to celebrate that this living Jesus now leads us forward, that this, is, that this is nourishment for the journey that is ahead of us. So we take it not only with, with great thanksgiving, but with great joy and hope and expectation. So I just wanted to be, you to be aware of that because uh, in just a little while, the kids are going to come back in and they're going to be joining us for communion. But right now, kids, you can. Head on, head on for Children's Church and have a great time again this Sunday. Give them a high five. Somebody give those guys a high five as they, kids, give them back. Give them, I mean, don't leave them hanging. Don't leave those people hanging who stick their hands out there. 
I've, I've been left hanging a time or two on a high five, and that's never a good feeling. Um, hey, this last week, we uh, gathered on Wednesday morning, as is our practice. The first Wednesday of every month, we gather for prayer. This is uh, a little bit of a uh, story, but it's also an advertisement, an unashamed plug uh, for our first Wednesdays. We've been doing this, I think, for three or four years now. Uh, the first Wednesday of every month, we gather here. We, we set up. I, I'm just gonna like paint it for you guys. So I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the picture so you don't have to be afraid and you can come sometime. It's it's really not intimidating. We put a little half circle right here. And, uh, and we sort of turn the light on the cross there, and we maybe sometimes light a candle here, and we just sort of gather, and sometimes I'll have some, some things to say to kind of get our prayer time going. Sometimes people will sit in silence. Other times people will participate and, and pray out loud, and we'll just sort of kind of bounce off of each other. Sometimes we'll share requests. Sometimes we'll just pray out requests. But we do it at 6.30 in the morning. We do it at noon. And we do it at 5 p.m. And um, I, you know, I really think that we should have more of you at this prayer meeting. I, I don't know how else to say that. Um, <laughs> did you hear me try to, like, hedge that a little bit? Um, but I really think that we should have more of you at this prayer meeting. Um, I trust that you are praying elsewhere on your own and with uh, small groups and in other settings. Um, if that's not the case, then we really should have more of you here at this prayer gathering. But some of you, you might just even hear me saying right now, I'm, I'm not being critical, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm not looking at anybody, I'm just looking generally over at you. But, but really, some of you just even right now are thinking, yeah, I really should be there. I should come. I, you know, it would be a bit of a pain to get up a little bit early or to leave work during the middle or of the day or to come at the end. It would be, but I really should be there. If that's you, just be here next month, all right? We won't make a big deal of it. We won't blow trumpets and say, hey, you're here. No, we'll just let you pray with us. It'll be great. But th this season of, the, of the, like, the calendar is particularly enjoyable for me at these early morning prayer times, the 6.30 time. We, we, we sort of stumble in in the darkness, and uh, people kind of stagger in, you know, and this, this week there was one, then two, then three, and then, you know, it was kind of, we were here, and everybody comes in, you know, happy to be there, but still a little bit asleep. And then what do we do? We close our eyes. You know, that, that's typically not a helpful thing to do when you're tired, it's dark outside. But well, we share a little bit, and then we... Then we close our eyes, and we begin to pray. And we pray, and we pray, and different people are praying, and, and we pray for you. I, likely, you have been prayed for. If, if, likely by name, actually, but if not by name, then just generally, um, you have been prayed for in, in our prayer time, prayer settings. And we pray for the church. We pray for pastors around our community. We pray for Christians in the church around the world. We pray for uh, we pray for great needs, we, we give thanks to God, we, just, we name his attributes and all his characteristics and the amazing things that he does in the world, we, uh, we just pray. But during this season of the year, it's particularly fun because when we 
finish praying, and I'm not sure about the other people in the group, but usually I kind of keep my eyes closed most of the time. Sometimes I'll open them up, but I don't really think about what I'm looking at. Um, but at the end of this prayer time, I look up, and it's, it's light outside. And in that hour, we have moved from darkness to light. And it was a little overcast, I'll be honest, this week when I looked out. But still, it was, it was light. We had moved spiritually from darkness to light in a very real sense. And physically, we had done the, the same thing. And, and so we sort of, again, I'll speak for me, but I think I'll speak for the group. We sort of rubbed our eyes and we moved out into the light into all that God had for us that day, into the, this great adventure that we talked about last Sunday, this choose your own as God leads you into the world in which he's called you to live. This is, this is Easter. This is Easter season. This is, this is what it means that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that we as a people have moved from darkness to light. That in Jesus' resurrection, new life has sprung forward and the birds are singing and the flowers are blooming and we are rubbing our eyes as his followers and we are being called out to move out into life, into abundant life. Jesus said, I think I have this passage there, Jeremy. Jesus said this in in John 10, 10. Read it with me, will you? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This was Jesus' promise, Jesus' words, that, that he had come that, that we would have life, have it abundantly. And, and this is what he made possible, and this is what, what, what he made practical in, in coming back to life at Easter. That we might have not just existence, but that we might have life abundant. And during this Easter season, we want to we think about what it means to live the abundant life. We want to think about what it means to live into all that, all that God raised Jesus from the dead to accomplish for us. It's one of my greatest like, nightmares. It's like a recurring nightmare. You have some of those? A recurring nightmare that somehow I and we would be living short of what God made possible for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That somehow we would be falling short or, or not grabbing onto all that God has made available to us in Jesus. And uh, so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be looking at passages from the book of Acts in, this, um, in these weeks, this Easter season. And uh, I want us to look there this morning. Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Acts chapter 4. And what we want to see this morning, what we get to see this morning is that, is that Easter, the Easter miracle is not only something that transforms individual lives. Not only can we sort of step back and be in awe of what God has done through Jesus in the transformation of individual lives. Aaron prayed about that, that, that we would experience this new life interiorly and individually. But, but the book of Acts reminds us that, that we can also be astonished at the miracle that is 
the body of Christ. That, that Christ's death and resurrection has given formation to a new community, a new, uh, a new experience of life together in which God's purposes and his plans are being carried out in ways that are, that are just odd and strange and against everything the culture that we live in would suggest to be as normal. So let's stand together, can we? And let me read this for us, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. And at the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can say thanks be to God. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Here is a community that Easter has given birth to. That might be a, a strange way to say that, but it's like this community has been birthed by the realities of Easter. This, this, this fledgling church, not even called the church at this point, this fledgling community of people has, has, has come about because of what has happened at Easter. No Easter, no people. No resurrection, no existence of this kind of community, no new life in Jesus, no new life in this, no, no interaction, no relationships like these that we find here. One author that I read this week put it like this. He said, the community, this community is an odd and crucial presence. And communities like it are odd and crucial presences in a culture of competition, conflict, isolation, and brutality. He said this, Easter makes a different way of life possible. Easter makes a different and new way of life possible among God's people. None of this uh, new and different way of life seems normal. I don't know what you thought as we read this passage. Maybe you thought, that was short. Um, maybe you thought, aren't we going to read more? Uh, I don't know what you thought. Maybe some of you thought, that's weird. What's going on there in the book of Acts is strange. That's not normal behavior. And to be honest, it's not normal behavior based on the rules that we play by in the world in which we live and the culture that we're a part of. Uh, it, is, uh, it is different. But Easter, and this is what I want us to remember this morning, Easter brings about a a new normal. Many of you know what I am talking about when I describe or I, I speak about a new normal. Many of you have, have lived one way for a long time for just a pattern of your life and then something happens, something, something drastic, something good or something very horrific can happen. 
And many of you can even point to something, and even in recent days, perhaps, or weeks, something where, where there's a, a mark in time, and what was normal is now different, and, and, and we're beginning to get a sense of this new normal that we're a part of. And this is exactly what's happened at Easter. Because of Jesus' resurrection, a new normal has begun. A new normal has, has started. Why would these folks want to live the same way? Jesus has been raised. Life is new. All bets are off. The old way is done. So why would they want to live the same way? Let's live into the new. Let's live into the, into the radical, into the different. And it's a church in Acts, this church right here in these verses, where we get to see this new reality, this new normal being lived out in real time. I don't know if you notice it, but at the very center of this passage, like 32, 33, 34, 35, there's not really a middle verse, but verse 33 is sort of what I just want to call the center of this passage. Both kind of geographically or physically located within this passage, but also the, the anchor, the center of all that is taught in this portion of Scripture hinges on this reality, is based, is centered, is anchored in this truth. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Amidst all the news, you can just leave that up there, amidst all the news of what else was going on in this new fledgling community of faith, this was the anchor point for all that was happening. This is what made possible the other implications and the other activity within the life of this church. It was the apostles proclaiming and testifying powerfully to this reality that, that kept them centered, that kept them anchored, that kept them focused. I know that when the big cruise ships come into our, just outside of our harbors and they anchor there and they stay there, you can see those ships from various vantages uh, in, in our community. And suddenly, I don't know if you're like me, but you're even driving down the highway and you, you look up and you're like, that's a big old boat right over there. I didn't even know I could see the ocean from here. And there it is. And, and, and it's right there. It's just this, this big old thing that everything else sort of identifies by, in a sense. And then this is what this, this Easter proclamation becomes for these people. It is the anchor point. It is the, it is the central piece by which everything else that they are becoming, that they will become, uh, is, is connected to, is tied to. It's what brings them together. It's what holds them together. It's what sends them out it's what does the same thing for us. The, the apostles testified, not meekly, not weakly, but powerfully. Their, their testimony. These were the eyewitnesses. These were the ones who had walked and talked with Jesus. They're the ones that had been in the room when, when the resurrected Jesus came through the walls. They're, they're the ones to whom he had shown the scars in his hands. They're the ones that he had sent into to mission powerfully after his resurrection, and now they were the ones who were testifying, sharing the story during this Easter season. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to continue to do. We want to be people who are testifying powerfully to the reality of the resurrection. This is to be a part of the new normal, but out of that comes some really interesting distinguishing marks of this community. One of them is that they were, in, they were, they were, they were marked by uh, an incredible unity. 
Did, did you note that? And just that, that, uh, that um, verse right there, probably Acts 4.32, just the very beginning one, Jeremy, or the, maybe the next one on the list. All the believers were united in heart and mind. Something had happened that had brought them together in a powerful, in a powerful way. This, this sense of living in relationship with this resurrected Lord had brought them together. It was the resurrection and it was their own experience of persecution and of challenge as well. Now, our story, we're going to look at this story a little bit deeper in weeks to come, but the passage that we've read today sort of comes at the tail end of, of a story that has happened there in the book of Acts, where Peter and John, you can look back if you want to a little bit, but we'll look at it more in depth in weeks to come. Peter and John had, had healed a man who was crippled, who was by the temple gates, and because they had healed him in, and commanded him to get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ, they had been brought before the religious council, the the, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and they had been threatened, and they had been warned to never teach or preach in the name of Jesus again, and they said, well, we're really not going to do that, and they said, well, you shouldn't anyway, and so they ended up sending them out. The, the ruling council ended up sending Peter and John out, and when Peter and John got sent out, they went to where a group of believers were huddled together, and they knocked on the door, and they went in, and they, and they prayed together. And I, I think that's pretty powerful. Again, another shameless plug for you to come to our prayer gatherings. They did it in the book of Acts. It's a pretty good thing for God's people to do. Um, but they came back, and when they, when, instead of panicking or shrinking back in fear or you know, coming to, to the, the fellow believers there and saying, you know, we really need to pray because we're in trouble and we better figure out a new strategy, they prayed more boldly than they ever had prayed before. I, I think I have this this prayer from 29 and 30. Yes. And now they prayed, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. This is their prayer to God. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I don't know if some of you remember a gal named Kirsten Brown who got married while she lived in Santa Barbara. Her name now is Kirsten Garrison. And uh, I think once I speak about her, more of you will remember Kirsten. But she stood right here one time and kind of a smaller person. Uh, and she was on her way to Honduras. She was going to Honduras to serve and live in mission where she and her husband are even now. And uh, she stood here, and I think I asked her, you know, what she was doing and what her plans were and how we could support her and all these different things. I don't know if you remember Kirsten's words, but they were along these lines, and this is the best of my recollection. She said, don't pray for my protection. Don't pray that the Lord would protect me. And we were all like, what? We want to pray that the Lord would protect you. You're so small and young and fragile. They're going to break you apart in Honduras. She said, don't pray that the Lord would protect me. She said, pray that the Lord would make me dangerous. Pray that the Lord would make me dangerous to the enemy's pursuits in Honduras. That I would be 
a powerful tool in the hand of the Lord in a very uh, fractured society and, and troubling place in, in the world. Don't pray that the Lord would protect me. Pray that, that the Lord would make me dangerous. That's what these people are praying in the book of Acts. That's what these, these resurrection Christians are praying as they get together. Peter and John, they've been threatened. They've been warned. Now they say, oh, Lord, just do what you want to do in us. Stretch out your hands. May your miracles be at work, and, and may we be a part of it. We don't need your protection, Lord. We want you to make us dangerous to the plans and pursuits of the enemy in the world in which we live. And this is what happened. The, the, the people started to get excited about that. Not only Peter and John, but the people, and, and our passage kind of suggests that it was a growing number of believers at this point, a company of believers, they started to get excited about that possibility of being dangerous for the kingdom in the world in which they lived, and they began to be more and more unified in heart and in mind, and as they centered and focused not on what their own individual pursuits were, but what God's pursuit was in the world, then they began to get their eyes off of themselves and their own interests and their own ideas and get their eyes on to God. And they began, as they were drawn closer to him, to be drawn closer to one another as well. And this community began to take on the characteristics like they had never known before of, of unity, of, of togetherness, of oneness. Amidst all their distinctions, amidst all their difference, amidst all their other, other ideas, they were becoming one. They centered in on Jesus. This was the growing reality. Now, here's, the, here's a reality of our world. There are so many things that, that could have divided them back then. And if we are to even think about living into this kind of unity of being this kind of resurrection people in the world in which we live, we have to first of all consider all the things that potentially could divide us. Even good Christian people at the Coast Community Church of the Nazarene, there, there are things that can get in the way of our relationships, things that can get in the way of our, our unity. Our culture is one in which we're, we're programmed, it seems like, from early on to, to value our opinions more than, than anything else, to value what we think and our, what, what we believe is true and right above any other idea. The, the, the concept of civil discourse and conversation has gone out, you know, out the window. It's, it's what do I think? And do you think what I think? And how can I get what I think to be more important than what you think? And, and it's just this, this, this world in which we live. So many things pull us apart. Even again among people of faith, our politics, our race, our gender, our socioeconomic status. We have to fight. We have to fight against these dividing issues and find that which holds us all together. And this is it, friends. It is the risen Lord Jesus. We're not here because we have the same affinities. We're not here because we have the shared hobbies. We're not here together because we have the same likes and dislikes, 
I love basketball. A lot of you can't stand it. You don't even understand it, and that's fine. You love things that I don't understand, and that's great. I love hearing about sometimes the things that you do. That didn't come out right. All the time I like hearing about it. Some of the times I understand it. Most of the time I'm nodding because I like you, because you like Jesus, and I do too, and we're together. But we're different. We're different. And, and we have different interests. And if we, if we lean into that, those differences at all, then we're quickly divided in the world in which we live. We're quickly set apart into the camps in which we, we can easily go to and find plenty of acceptance. Right? We can all find acceptance in these various camps that we believe in. But we have one camp in the church, and that's the camp of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's he who unites us. It's he who brings us together. So we, we, we need to learn to be united in heart and mind. It's, it's the power of Jesus at work that makes that happen. But we need to learn to extend ourselves. I just, I just want to tell you this. I'm speaking boldly. You need to come to prayer, and you need to learn to extend yourself. You need to learn to, to, um, to, to look past our differences. You need to look past the the shortcomings that perhaps you see in somebody else or those that you can only see in yourself. And, and, and we need to lean towards each other and not away from each other. Listen, we need to quit judging each other. We really do. And we need to quit worrying about whether or not we're being judged. Can I say that? Both of those things, I think, are true. We, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know they are. We, we, we need to quit judging each other. Just get it off the table. That's not what we're all about. It's just not, there's, there's just no place for it. But we also need to quit worrying about whether or not we're being judged. Just get on with it. You know, just, it's too short to worry about what other people are thinking about us. Let's get on with it. Get on with mission. Um, I remember I was in conversation with a person one time, and I could tell there was tension. I didn't think that I was responsible for the tension, but I probably was at some level. But I remember just looking at this person saying, you know, I think the only thing that's really wrong between us is that you think there's something wrong between us. I really don't have any problem with you. And um, maybe I did, and I was shielding that. <laughs> but, but sometimes I think that we just think or we just imagine ourselves into issues that we just need to kind of move, move past to the best of our abilities. we got to come to a place of loving each other, accepting each other for being the less than perfect people that we are, forgiving one another, giving each other space to be human, and, and, and loving, again, with the love of Christ, not just so that we can all get along, that's not our goal, but so that we can get on with the work that God has in store for us. This is the unity that Christ has made possible for us, and anytime we, we live short of that, then we're not taking full advantage of the resurrection power of Jesus. I love what, the, what, it, what it says of these believers. It says, they felt that what they owned was not their own. Did you notice that? They felt that, they were so united that they felt that what they owned was not their own. I, I think I own this. Actually, no, I don't own this. It's kind of what was going on. I, these are things I own. Actually, I don't own them. 
And, and I thought about that in terms of their possessions, for sure. Obviously, Luke, the writer of Acts, is speaking about the people's possessions, the thing that they owned, that, that they were acknowledging to not really be the things that they owned. But I also thought about all the other things that we, that we own, our philosophies and our ideas and even our culture and our likes and our dislikes, all of our stuff, not just physical, tangible stuff, but stuff that I have sort of accumulated in my heart that, that goes into who I understand myself to be. And this is who I am. And, and it was as if the believers in that day, and I believe the believers in this day, need to kind of look at themselves and say, you know what, I, th I thought I owned this, but actually I don't own any of this. Actually, everything that I am, everything that I have, both that I hold in my hand and that I hold in my heart, is available and is accessible and I am willing to lay it all down, whatever it might be, whatever God might ask, so that the unity of the body of Christ might go forward. So that the purposes and plans of God in the world might advance. What I, my stuff, in other words, is not more important than what God wants to get done in the world. And so I don't... Practically, I don't, know, I don't know exactly what that means for you, but it might mean, you know, just kind of letting the Lord be the Lord of what we, what we supposedly own, whether it's stuff that we hold in our hands or stuff that we hold in our hearts. Now, I know this isn't normal. It's crazy to talk this way. That rich and poor, brown and white, female and female, Democrat and Republican could all be one. Could all set these things aside for the mission of God. It's not normal. It's the new normal. It was this sense of, of, of unity, though. It was this sense of of selflessness that was coming upon the people here in, in the book of Acts, these people that were situated in the resurrection of Jesus, that, that not only was uni uniting them, but it was, it was bringing them to a new level of, of generosity. And I think that's the other powerful thing that this passage brings out. Not, not only just unity, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ was making possible and bringing about a generosity among these people like had never been seen, uh, never been seen before. Look at it again there in um, verse 34 and 35. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Um, there's, there's at least a couple of things happening here. One, one is that it's, it's just this beautiful example of selflessness and generosity among the people. But at the same time, the other side of that is this, this, this strong awareness of the needs of God's people among them. And, and you can have one without the other. You can have a great generous spirit, but a total unawareness of what the needs might be. Or you can 
be really aware of the needs, but have no resources with which to help them. And, and in this statement, in this description of these people, these two things were powerfully coming together, a, a, a deep longing to make everything that they had available and a deep awareness at the same time of, of what the needs were in their community. In Israel of old, it had been the family that had been the protector of the individual. If someone fell on hard times, their family was there to pick them up. Their family was there to take them in. Um, if it was sickness or bad fortune or whatever it might have been. But now, in this day, people were moving around a lot more. People had come to Jerusalem. People were going to the cities. They were leaving their families, and they were coming to places. And now, when things went wrong, there was no family there to pick them up or to take them in. Now, though, because of what God had done in Jesus, there was a new family. There was the family of, of, of faith, uh, the the church. And here were people, here were people who were coming to understand that their meaning and purpose in life was not to be found in their personal wealth. It wasn't to be found in their own comfort or security, but in making their best contribution to the work of God in the world. And to the, 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 the shared, compassionate care for God's people who were in need. These, these folks that are spoken of here in the book of Acts, their lives had been radically changed. They, they had been confronted by the reality of a resurrected Lord. And they knew that because of that, nothing could ever be the same again. They, they, they couldn't find their meaning in what they had in their land and in their homes and in their possessions. They could only find their meaning in offering all of who they were and all that they had to, to this, this risen Lord and to his purposes. They knew that since this family of faith was something that Jesus had given rise to, that Jesus obviously valued, that Jesus had given his life for and been raised to life for, since it was something that Jesus valued, they knew that it was something that they were to value as well. I remember when I was in college, I took some classes at a community college, and one of them was a, a history class, and we were talking about um, history. That's what you do in history class. And uh, the, the professor uh, cited the book of Acts in connection to the political or economic idea of communism. And... That was kind of striking to me. <laughs> and in fact, there are some shared practices between communism and this community, communal life that's described in, in the book of Acts. The, the key difference is that communism is atheistic and a, a nice philosophical and economic and political ideal, while the communal life of the book of Acts, this sharing of resources was based not on some political ideal, but again, on one who had given completely of himself, based solely on this one who had been raised to new life. I, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know if when you read these passages like this, if you just like get nervous, you know, what's he going to say about my money? <laughs> you know, or... Um, if you're just like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to sell all my land and houses. 
Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what your, your sense is, but I, I just, I know that there's at least two things that I want to hit on real quick that, that we need to, that we really need to think about in response to this type of passage. And this particular, not this, just this type, but this, this particular passage. The first, the first is that we need to be people who, who um, by the grace of God, have a grip on our money. By, by the strength and leadership of the Holy Spirit. We, we need people who are getting a grip on our, our financial picture. I, and I say it that way because I think the opposite is often true, is that our financial picture has a grip on us, <laughs> right? That, 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 that we don't own these things necessarily, even these possessions that we supposedly own, that, that in reality they, they own us. We, we got the uh, DVD of The Last Jedi a couple weeks ago, just came out big Star Wars fans in our house, so we watched it again, and I was struck by uh, a, this Kylo Ren guy, and uh, some of you, again, not Star Wars people at all, I can see it in your eyes right now, you non-Star Wars, non-Star Wars people, and those of you who are Star Wars people, I'm sorry, because I'll probably mess this up at some level, but Kylo Ren, the son of Han Solo, uh, spoiler, maybe, if you haven't seen like three movies back, but... <laughs> And, uh, and Princess Leia. I mean, he's got the genes, right? This should be a great thing. But he's also got the genetic pool of the one who would be Darth Vader. And so there's this, there's this turmoil in his life. And, uh, and it's, it's evident, but it's not only him. It's anyone in this movie that when they get gripped by the dark side, right? It's just, it's wild to see what happens. And I had never noticed this before. I'm not sure it happened in the other movies, but like, it seemed like their eyes kind of turned like green. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just imagining that. But, but they get this look, and when the dark side is really at work, or when it's, you know, strong in this one, then, then you can just see that they're they are gripped. I know it's just a movie, okay? I know it's just a movie. But they're gripped by something that, that's outside of them. And, and I, but... Seriously, as I read this passage this week, I thought, that's, that's money. That's money. It, and it's green. Our eyes even turn green when we're gripped by the power of money, the dark side of money. And, and I'll tell you, a lot of people want to say, hey, money's just neutral. It's what you make of it, you know, good or bad. I don't believe that for a second. Hey, the more money people have, the worse things they do often. Not all the time, by any means. But if we don't intentionally submit that, money to the Lord, then I think it, it, by it left to its own natural tendencies and ours as well, it will take us in a negative direction. So we have to be people who are, are getting a grip on this. And this is hard because if you haven't noticed, we live in a culture where we're bombarded with opportunities to think about how much money we do or do not have. Every time we sit down at a computer and go online, and it knows exact, It knows what we want. It just knows what we want. And the advertisements come up, maybe because we've you know, looked at that particular item online 500 times before we have bought it. But it knows what we want, and we're bombarded by it, and the, and the catalogs and the advertisements are all around us. 
and it's the world that we live in, and we count our money, or we count how little money we have, and then we do it again, and then we look at our accounts again, and we admire our possessions, or we think about the possessions that we wish we had, and that we'll someday have, and our lives just sort of revolve around money so often, just like, you know, planets around the sun. And I came up with this saying. I don't know if you're going to like it or not, but I just came up with this saying. We live not by the will and way of the Lord, but by what we can afford. I, I don't know if that's a good one or not, but it just seems right. It's like, should I, should I do this or that? Well, can I afford it? Should I do this or that? I don't know. Do I have enough in the bank account? I better check. Oh, I don't? That's fine. I got a credit card. It's all good. Not by the way. Or, or should I do this or that? What, what would God have me to do? How would God have me to use my resources in this situation, the resources that he's given me? How would he help me to be a wise steward? We can end up living day to day, making decisions based, again, on whether or not we can afford it unless on what the will and way of the Lord is. We need to get the bank account back where it belongs, under the lordship of Jesus. And by the grace of God, as John Wesley would have us think, we need to get a grip on our, our earning and on our saving and our spending and on our giving we need, to, we need to know what's happening with all that stuff. These people in Acts, they apparently did. Because the second part of it is this. In, in response to the resurrection and, and, the, and the call on, of God on our lives to be totally available to him, we need to be discovering where and when and how we can be of service to God in, in the world. We need to be people who are staying in touch with the realities of need in the world and in the church. We need to be people who are reminded there are still people, even who sit among us who are struggling financially from month to month to make ends meet. We need to remember that there are great needs around us. We need to remember that there are brothers and sisters all around the world today. You know, we, we have first world problems, right? I mean, it's a hashtag. I mean, it's, it's these are our problems. We need to remember that there are people all around the world today with problems so much greater than ours that, that if, if we were to faithfully share of our resources in the way that the book of Acts models for us, what could happen? I, what have I said this morning? I've said you need to come to prayer, you need to get a grip on money. Here's the third one I just want to tangibly say to you. I think everyone in here, and I, I think I can almost say this, maybe, maybe not everyone. You might be in a place where this isn't possible for you, but just about everyone in here should be sponsoring a child somewhere in the world. And there are so many different agencies that make this available, whether it's Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, whether it's World Relief, whether it's uh, Compassion. There are uh, a number of agencies that make this possible and that have great track records, I can tell you, about using the funds, usually between $30 and $40 a month, you know, a couple of large pizzas, and you've sponsored a kid's education and his or her clothes and medicines and food, and, and you've made possible for a child to grow up in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise. I, I just think it's like a really kind of a no-brainer, honestly. It's like ready-made, just $30 a month, and a kid's life has changed. So come to pray, 
get a grip, sponsor a child. If you get nothing else, uh, then you got those three things. And if you need to know how to sponsor a child, then come talk to me. And I'd love to uh, make, help make that connection for you. It's easy to, it's, it's really easy to do. Um, we, we just forget. We just forget. Or maybe we just get too focused on what our own issues are. One of my favorite parts about the, gospel, the, the believers in the book of Acts I don't know if you noticed this, but it, it said it on that verse. You don't have to put it up there, I mean, but it said that they, 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 it actually, it didn't say a couple of things. It didn't say that they were willing to sell their lands and houses. It said that they did. It, the, the book of Acts doesn't just provide for us like uh, an impressive idea. And, and we didn't read it, but the next couple of verses are the example of Barnabas who did just that, sold his, sold his property, brought the money. And the other thing it doesn't say about these people is it doesn't say that they, that they sold their land and their, their houses and they, they like went around handing out cash to needy people. Did you notice that? It doesn't say that they went around just as the benefactors to the poor. What it says, if you notice, what it says is that they sold their land, their property, and they brought the money to the apostles who then distributed it as there was need. And what that says to me, I don't know if it says this to you, but it says to me that these people who were doing this, they didn't care who got the credit. They didn't care who got the glory. In fact, they didn't want the acclaim. And they didn't want there to be any sense of obligation or patronage or anything like that between them and the other members of the body of Christ. They wanted to just be, hey, this isn't my money. This isn't my stuff. This is us. This is the kingdom. This is how I want to be a part of this. And it says a lot to me about the spirit by which and in which we give. These people who were experiencing great unity, these people who were expressing great generosity. We're also, and this is the last idea, verse 33 there, Jeremy, I think it's the last one. Did you notice this? God's great blessing was upon them all. Um, it's a little unclear if that blessing was just on the apostles or upon all the people. I, I kind of think that it was just upon everybody. As they're living in this great spirit of unity, as they're giving themselves with this extravagant generosity, they were experiencing this blessing, and some translations saying God's great grace or God's great favor was upon them all, but there's this sense that they were just living in the sweet spot of life. They were living the abundant life. Some, uh, I've heard this saying that blessing follows obedience, and when we're, when we're in the place where God would have us to be, we can know that we can receive the blessing that God would have for us. Now, it's very important to note that blessing doesn't mean we get everything we want. Blessing doesn't mean that all the, you know, everything lines up the way that we think it should, that, that all the pieces fall into place. I'm blessed. I just got a check in the mail. I'm blessed. I mean, you know, that's, that's not how it works all the time, but, but there is, a, a, it, sometimes it does actually, but, but sometimes it's just a, a sense of, of being of being in the, in the place where God would have you to be and doing what God would have you to do. 
experiencing this, this, this sort of this sweet spot. I, I'm not a tennis player, and I'm really not a golfer either, but usually every time I golf, which I haven't done for a while, but every time I do, and this is a famous saying among golfers, is I get at least one good hit. And everyone, as soon as, you get, as soon as I get that hit, the people I'm playing with say, that'll keep you coming back. Because if you've ever golfed or played tennis, you know, they even call it on a racket, the sweet spot. Or if you ever hit a baseball bat right, or a baseball with a bat right on the right part of the bat, or hit a golf ball, just, just true, it's the Masters, right, going on this weekend. This is an appropriate illustration. Then, then you know, I mean, it just feels like, like it just felt like you barely touched it. It was just so easy and, and just right. I think this is sort of what the blessing of God feels like. Just like, this is right. This is how it's supposed to act and work, and this is how it's supposed to operate within the body of Christ. This is what the people were experiencing in that place and in that time, and this is what we're invited to experience as well. Hey, what we need to know on this second Sunday of Easter, last Sunday, it's the first Sunday of Easter season, what we need to know on this second Sunday of Easter season is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes abundant life possible. It, it, it sends us off to prayer and it calls us to get a grip on our finances and it maybe results in more sponsored kids, but it makes abundant life possible. It's what enables unity. It's what brings forth generosity. It's what ultimately leads to blessing. And it's a compelling vision. This, this new normal, it's a compelling vision that, uh, that not only believers, I would hope, would want to be a part of deeply and desperately, but even those looking on in the world to see a community experiencing the resurrection of Jesus, a new normal, and would somehow potentially want to be a part of that as well. Let's, let's pray together, can we? I'm going to have our worship team and our servers just come on down here. And I'll serve you in just a moment. God, thanks so much for, uh, for this word that we've heard again this morning. Thanks that we can live in this Easter season, that after fasting for 40 days, we can feast for 50 and beyond, and we can celebrate what it is, God, that you've done in Jesus. And we can not only celebrate it, but we can live into the realities, that we can live into the promise of new life, both now and forever, and new life that can change the way not only we as individuals see the world and experience the world, but the way that we as a community of people the church, the body of Christ, the family of faith, the way that we can experience life together, life with you. Just praying, God, that, that this would indeed be a compelling vision, that this community that had been radically transformed into a new normal by the resurrection of Jesus Christ would be such a compelling vision that we might want more of that as well, that we might too want to live into all that God has made possible the transformation that he's made possible in our own individual lives that can lead to a, transform, a transformed community, a community that can then be a light 
and a, a, a presence in the world in such a way that witnesses to your power, God, that witnesses to your love, and that would draw more and more into it. God, we thank you that, that, uh, that your heart is for more and more to know you, for more and more to know this abundant life. That's your longing and your desire, and to use us, your people, in such a way that this truth might, make, might be known. Thank you, oh God, for drawing us a unified people a generous people, a blessed people into your mission in the world. And it is what we long for today. So even as we celebrate this Lord's Supper now in these moments, we pray that you would be glorified and that uh, you would be, you'd be lifted up. Pray this in your name.